The scripture reading is from 1 Thessalonians 5 and uh, from verse 11. And I think Damien's going to read. No, uh, inspiration, I am reading this passage um, from uh, 1 Thessalonians 5, and we're reading from verse 11. Hear the word of God. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as, in fact, you are doing. Now, we ask you, brothers, to respect those who work hard among you, who are over you in the Lord, and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard in love because of their work. Live in peace with each other. And we urge you, brothers, warn those who are idle, encourage the timid, help the weak, be patient with everyone. Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always try to be kind to each other and to everyone else. Be joyful always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not put out the Spirit's fire. Do not treat prophecies with contempt. Test everything. Hold on to the good. Avoid every kind of evil. And may God himself The God of peace sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I charge you before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Let me continue in prayer together. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this series that we will complete today in 1 Thessalonians. Father, thank you for your word, and we rejoice in the fact that chapter 1 particularly mentioned that your message rang out from those who were in Thessalonica. And Lord, as we come into these summer months, we pray that your message, the good news about Jesus, would ring out from this place through your people. We thank you today for those who are overseas, sharing their life and the gospel with others. We pray particularly for Helen in Japan. We lift Simone in Nepal to you. Thank you, Father, for Simone's recent excursion into a remote village in Nepal. We praise you for that man who responded to Jesus' message. We pray for Helen and Simone, that they will be like Paul, that they will love the people they encounter like a mother and father to their children. For the glory and honor of your name, we pray. Father, we pray and thank you for our partnership and connections with Gilgal, and Golgotha in Moldova. 
Thank you that we support them and pray for them. Thank you that we're learning from them as they are disciples of yours. And we pray, Father, that you will continue to do a good work in these places. We bring before you the work that's carried out in your name locally. We pray particularly for the two weeks of walkway in July and the Arches service this Saturday. Father, we pray, have your hand upon them. Father, we bring before you Kenzie Bowers as she heads off to Canada in this incoming week. Lord, go before her. May she settle quickly into the life of the camp and give her opportunities to share the word and action of the love of God, we pray. Lord, help her to love these campers over these six weeks and to share Jesus with them. Draw her close to you. Deepen her commitment and love for you, we pray this morning. Father, we pray for our children and teenagers as they finish school this week. Father God, we particularly pray for the P7 children as they transition and say their goodbyes, as later in this year they transition up to secondary school. Lord, may this time of their life be one in which they are aware that you determine their steps, that you are a loving Father to them. Father, we remember in prayer again, Frank and Claire, as this moditorial year closes out. Lord, grant them refreshment and renewal spiritually and physically over these summer months. Bless their family time together. And we pray for their return, that you will make this transition back into the fellowship a blessing for all here. Father God, you teach us to rejoice always, to pray continually, to give thanks in all circumstances. And Father, we want to do that now in this moment of quiet. We want to rejoice with those things that we can rejoice over. We want to pray and bring those things that worry us, that are pressures on us. Lord, we want to give thanks in all circumstances. Father God, into your care and your sovereign power, we bring these prayers and we ask them in and through the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Please turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and we're looking this morning at verses 11 uh, to 28. You'll find it on page 1188. Let me pray for us this morning as we come to God's Word. Father, thank you for those words that we sang, let no voice or sin remain that resists your holy war because you have purchased and loved us and made us your very own. Father, as we come to the end of 1 Thessalonians, Father, help us not to resist your word. Help us not to quench the fire of the Spirit, but Lord, help us to be continually sanctified by all that you're doing in this fellowship for the glory and honor of your name we pray. Amen. The French uh, writer Alexander Dumas wrote many novels which contained lots of adventure. He's a pretty looking boy, isn't he? And one of his most famous novels was The Three Musketeers, which you've probably read or seen, which follows the young man D'Artagnan who leaves his home to go to Paris to join the Musketeers of the Guard. But do you remember the famous motto that the Musketeers had? They had this phrase, it was one for all and all for one. One for all and all for one. 
And what that motto captures is their togetherness, doesn't it? Their close connections, their commitment to one another as musketeers. It's the same with the US Army Marines. Though probably not official US Army policy, they often have been known to practice and hold to the brave decision, leaving no soldier behind in combat or war, which again captures their unity, their togetherness, their desire, and hope for one another. You see, these two examples show us a bond or commitment that people may have. But Bloomfield folk, what is your bond? What is your commitment to one another? Because what we have here as Paul finishes off his first letter to the Thessalonians in this verse is a reminder of our bond, what brings us together as people from a variety of backgrounds. Look at how many times in verses 12 to 28 the word brothers appears. Verse 12, it says brothers, 14, 25, 26, 27. He loads it at the end and he says brothers. And this is a plural word which means brothers and sisters. It means the whole church together, family, brought together from different backgrounds, experiences. But what have you got in common? They've turned away from idols, turned to the living and true God. The gospel has brought them together. They're now brothers and sisters in Christ, one for all and all for one. And Paul has been addressing this church family who are in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He's been encouraging them over this letter to keep doing what they're doing. He's warned them. He's taught them second coming last week. And he's instructed them, this is how you are to please God. Paul's desire is that God would continue to transform them, that word sanctify, and strengthen them. And so we come to Paul's final few words in this first letter to the family. And here's what he says in verse 11. Do you see it? That they are to encourage one another and build each other up just as you are doing. And verses 12 to 28 of this passage are really mapping out what this encouraging and building up of one another might look like in the family of God. And Paul is quite specific. Firstly, he speaks and encourages about encouraging and building up in verses 12 and 13. Do you see where he speaks what I've called the church family and their leaders? And we read this. And we ask you, he says to these brothers and sisters, to respect those who work hard among you, who are over you in the Lord and who admonish you. Hold them in highest regard, in love because of their work. Live in peace with each other. So verse 11 says, encourage and build one another up. Verse 12 and 13 then come very specifically and they speak to church members and their leaders. And there are three things that Paul spells out about church leaders and what they should be doing are three things. And he says, firstly, they are to work hard. The word work hard here is the same idea connected with manual labor, just like digging a hole. You know, if you've ever done it, that continuation of you start off and you think, oh, gusto, I'm, I'm flying it. And you start shoveling the dirt or you're doing the weeds or the garden. But then over time, what happens is you fade out, don't you? You drain of energy because it's physically tiring. And that is the idea here of work hard here in this verse. It is tiring. My um, 
Yeah, maybe I've shared this before. My four brothers and my dad are, are quite practical and handy. They work physically. One's on a farm, another's a metal fabricator. Um, shoveling and lifting is what they do. When, when they look at me with my white hands, they will often say to me, will you go away with those lily whites, right? And what they mean is that, you know, they're used to manual labor. But here in this verse, for the Christian leadership, God says they work hard like that manual labor. And he says this, and he reminds that Christian leaders are to ministering to God's people, and it is working hard, even though it may not be physical work, bringing God's word to people, praying. It involves hard work. It's a spiritual labor. It's a work which involves committing to people. Many of our elders who are in front of you today, some of them, are with people in the highs and lows of life, from visiting a family with a new baby to being at the very end of life with those who are loved ones who are passing away. And this verse assumes that those in Christian leadership within the church work hard for the Lord as they serve his people. So that's the first thing. Paul says they work hard. Second thing, the leadership are over you in the Lord. Do you see it in the verse? God, in his wisdom and gracious provision to us, has given us appointed elders to have pastoral oversight in his local church. Listen to how Peter puts it, and we've, we've brought this verse up before. He says to the elders, be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, serving as overseers, not because you must, but because you're willing, as God wants you, not for greed, but to serve. Or listen to how Paul, in departing from these elders in Ephesus, he says this, keep watch over yourselves and all the flock which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. Christian leadership has God's appointed hand all over it. Elders, teachers, pastors are given the role of pastoral oversight for those in the congregation in a variety of ways. They are to be servant leaders, setting an example to you, protecting and defending you from error or false teaching, encouraging you in godliness and your gifts. And that's why today, even coming into membership with those new folk, they're coming under the authority of the eldership, which God has appointed here in Bloomfield. And so elders work hard. Leaders of church are over you in the Lord. And thirdly, it says, they are to admonish you. Admonish here carries the word of teaching, instruction from God's word. Admonish can also mean warning keeping from error or wrong, or even discipline or reprove. So as church leaders work hard among you, as they exercise their pastoral oversight in the Lord, as they admonish, what is to be the response, says Paul, and the attitude of those under such leadership? What, what does it say? Two things. They are to respect and they are to hold in high regard, in love, because of their work. Let me tell you a funny story um, about respect and high regard for leadership. And I, I, do, I do say this because I love this woman very dearly, but this is what happened. I was, and this is to kind of prove respect and high regard in a wrong way. <laughs> I was once in a church where the moderator, not Frank Seller, a previous moderator, was visiting. And this dear old lady of the local church saw the moderator coming out of a room to go into the main sanctuary. And he was in all his attire, the, the garbs were on, everything. And he, he, looked, he looked wonderful. 
But as he came down, this woman who I was talking to was nearly speechless as the moderator came towards her. She almost genuflected in front of him out of respect for him and for his role and authority. And, and that is one aspect, isn't it? Where respect or appreciate, hold in high regard, you can often see, particularly with a certain generation, and that is there. The church, and, but often the church has given too much respect and too much regard to elders and ministers, which has resulted in all sorts of trust being broken, honor with titles rather than role, and then fights and squabbles break out. It's called what you would often call clericalism. But today, it's probably the opposite, isn't it? Where we've moved in the other direction, where we treat those in eldership and Christian leadership with no regard, with no respect, where they can be seen as equal in function to everyone else, or treated as some CEO or manager or performer of rights. The ministry of all believers has been wonderfully recaptured in the church and continues to be, but the scriptures are clear. Let me just read a verse from Ephesians 4. It says, it was he, that is God, who has given some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers, to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. Here, God has given certain gifts, certain functions within the church. For what purpose? To lord it over? No. It is to serve, to prepare God's people for works of service. Why does God, in his word, lay down this in verses 12 and, and, and 13? Because the reality is, left to our own devices, left to our own ways, we would end up living in tension with one another. You and I can probably think of examples where leaders have stepped down who were absolute bullies, heavy-handed, domineering in their role, and so caused havoc. You may know or have experienced church members and leaders who are at each other's throats in destructive and conflicting relationships, but God's Word says to us here, encourage and build one another up. And that starts when Paul takes us to the relationship between elders, pastors, and teachers, and the congregation. Hold in respect, appreciate what they do, hold in high regard, in love, live at peace with one another. If Christian leaders are not working hard, doing their pastoral oversight, admonishing, if they're not doing those things, pray for them. If you're struggling to respect and hold in regard your leaders, pray for them. Address it with them in a godly fashion and in a way that is seeking to edify, build up, encourage. See these elders that are in front of you, some of them this morning. Encourage them, respect them, appreciate what they do. Because what is here is Paul saying is that because when this relationship breaks down, it's a disaster. But Paul says when the relationship is as described in verses 12 and 13, it is peaceful, it is loving, it is edifying for all the church family. John Stott sums up this verse by saying this, happy is the church family in which pastors and people recognize that God calls different believers to different ministries, exercising their own ministries with diligence and humility and give others the respect and love which their God-appointed labor demands. Palmer goes on and he says this, peace will result when love increases among those in the church, especially between the shepherds and the congregational flock. We need to ask ourselves, how are we doing what verses 12 and 13 is saying? Are we respectful? 
Are we holding them in high regards? Are our elders, our pastors, teachers, are they working hard? Are they fulfilling their role of pastoral oversight? Are they admonishing, warning, teaching, encouraging? And this leads us to verses 14 and 15, which I've called the family together. Because in verses 14 and 15, Paul moves from the relationships between the church family and its leaders to address all within the church. And it says this, and we urge you brothers, warn those who are idle, encourage the timid, help the weak, be patient with everyone, make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always try to be kind to each other and to everyone else. Brothers, all the church are being addressed here, the collective body of it. We are all to be engaged in encouraging and building each other up. And there are three groups mentioned here. The idle. Firstly, we learned, didn't we, a couple of weeks ago, that the idle were those who weren't working. <laughs> they thought that Jesus was coming back, so they gave up working and were dependent on others to help them through. Here, the word idle means that they've stepped out of line. They're like that soldier who stepped out of his orders, of his commander, and not following the squadrant. They are to be warned. And perhaps you know brothers and sisters who are not living in a manner that pleases God. They've stepped out of line with gospel living. God says, warn them. Warn the idol. Warn the one who has stepped out. Unfortunately, that sometimes comes back to the elders and leaders to do that. But here, the verse is to everyone. Because you may know them. You may be their friend. You may have seen them drift away. And God says here, warn the idol. Encourage the timid. Do you see it there? Why would people be timid? Well, for the Thessalonians, they're going through persecution and trials and different kinds. Their loved ones have died and they're worried about their destiny. The timid here means to be discouraged, faint-hearted, and the church family is to be encouraging those who are timid. Help the weak, spiritually weak, physically weak, is it? Paul's concern for the Thessalonians was that the tempter had come and that his work was in vain. And here, perhaps, the weak shows itself in falling into patterns of sinful behavior. Folks, in a church like ours, we are going to have the idle. We're going to have the timid and the weak. And the question is, as we live life together, Paul instructs us here. He says, encourage the timid. Help the weak. Warn the idle. It's a work that means we have to be living this out together. It's a work that means that you have to be accountable, working what this out. You cannot do this from a distance. And Paul finishes verses 14 and 15 with this lovely reminder, which is very simple. He says, be patient with everyone. Make sure nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always try to be kind. Be patient with the idle, the weak, the timid, again and again and again. Wrongs done to you, don't pay back with wrong. We live in a growing culture, don't we, where retaliation is common, where lawsuits, where suing is becoming such a common thing. And here, these verses, don't pay back wrong for wrong. And if you're a Christian deep down, maybe you long for this way of life, good, encouraging, building each other up. But how true is this little rhyme that everyone should know when it comes to living this out with our own people? It says this, to dwell above with the saints we love. That will be grace and glory. To live below with the saints we know, that's an entirely different story, isn't it? And how true that is. You've been in this church 20, 30 years, some of you. Some of you are here a year and a half. Maybe you're here going, this is a lovely place. 
to dwell below with the saints we know is an entirely different story. There will be calls for us to be patient. You'll be wronged at times. How will you respond? When you're idle and weak and timid, will you encourage, build one another up? Folks, we're a broken, sinful people here in Bloomfield. God has brought us together by His grace. He's changing us to be more like His Son. And this working out involves this specific things as well. This is what we call gospel truth and culture working its way out. And the question is, how are we doing on this? Have you lost patience? Are you bitter with the wrongs? Are you stingy instead of kind? Are you going, I see what's happening, but I'm not going near it. And this moves us to verses 16 to 22, which I've called the church family's attitude and practice. Here in verses 16 to 18, which are quite well-known verses, we read this. Be joyful always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances. Wonderful verse. Be joyful, knowing what God has done for you, that how he has treated you better than you ever deserve. Acknowledge in all that God has done and given to you. Pray continually for the small and big things. And then it says, give thanks in all circumstances. It doesn't say, give thanks for all circumstances, because some will be hard and awful and even evil. But it's a, in the midst of those circumstances, seek to give thanks. These things, joy, prayer, and thankfulness, will be a battleground for the Christian and the community of faith. There will be a daily battle to nurture and cultivate these attitudes and practices in our lives. They are learnt practices and attitudes over time through trials, ups and downs of life. But get this, joy, prayerfulness, thankfulness are God's will for your life and our corporate life together. Do you see it at the end of the verse? God wants this to be of his people, joyful, prayerful, thankful. And so it makes sense then that Paul comes on and he says, do not put out the Spirit's fire. Don't quench the Spirit. Here, Paul is speaking about the third person of the Trinity, that as we look at these details today, as we seek to put them into practice, Paul is saying to us, this is the work of God. This is His will and purpose. The Spirit will be at work in you, seeking to sanctify you, to be like this type of people. So don't put out the Spirit's fire. Don't be resistant to it when it comes to the Spirit. We know that the Spirit is a teacher. We know that He guides and leads, that He convicts of sin. And so there will be elements where we look at this passage today and we'll go, I, I can't be like that. I'm not like that. I can't do that with this person or this community. And Paul says, don't put out the Spirit's fire and don't show contempt for prophecy. Test everything, he says. At this time in the New Testament, the Scriptures were still being composed and written and delivered. And so it's understandable that Paul would write, don't treat prophecy with contempt. Test everything. For us today, what does this verse mean? We know that the canon of Scripture has been closed. The Old and New Testaments books are the Word of God for us today, His revelation. We no longer have apostolic ministries or people who are delivering God's Word. But what does this mean? It means don't show contempt for God's Word. Test everything. Testing everything against Scripture. We do not want to quench the Spirit's work by adopting unbiblical teaching or ways or patterns in our lives. We don't want to quench the Spirit's work by following every 
new wave of innovation, doctrine, or emphasis without testing it against Scripture. Paul tells them, do not show contempt, disdain for prophecy. Instead, he says that we are to hold on to the good and avoid every kind of evil. Verses 25 to 28, Paul signs off this letter. Paul signs off in verse 25 to 28 with asking for prayer for himself. Do you see it there? He signs off by saying to them, express their family bond with a holy kiss. All right. What does that mean for us today? When I was in college in, in UCC in first year, I lived with a French student. And when his friends would come in, male and female, they had a custom of kissing each other on the cheek. And as an Irish lad, I was going, uh-oh. <laughs> and one time, this, this guy came towards me. Um, and it, it was, I think it was a female or me, I can't remember. But they went to kiss me on the cheek. And I felt so awkward culturally. And I was going, that's a bit odd. And here, Paul is saying, greet each other with a holy kiss. John Stott, in his, in his Englishness, says this, this should be a culturally appropriate sign today, whether that's hand in a shake or a hug or whatever it is. But this is what Paul says. He signs off this letter asking for prayer. He says, you're a family. Treat each other with a holy kiss. And then he signs off by saying to them, read this letter out loud to all the brothers, not to show contempt for the Scriptures, so that all will hear it together, so they can work it out together. And here Paul signs off his letter. But I want to close 1 Thessalonians with these concluding remarks to wrap up. Chapter 4 of Thessalonians began with the following phrase, and you can flick back and see it. It says, finally, brothers, we instruct you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you to do so more and more. As we've looked into 1 Thessalonians, we've been taught and instructed by God that this is the gospel's power to change people. This is the gospel and how it is lived out. But I'm sure even this morning, as you read these verses, you could be overwhelmed by how far short your life is when you read these verses this morning. That you read about warning the idle, encouraging the timid. That you read about living peacefully, respecting your leader, and you think, I'm falling so far short of it. Can I say to you this? Good. You could be overwhelmed by the fact that God is asking you and I to, to live like this, and yet you feel inadequate. Good. You could be overwhelmed by it, and yet deep down you desire this because you have the Spirit of God in you who is moving you to live for this way, and you're wondering, can I do it? Because you're conscious of your weaknesses, your sinfulness, your tendency to resist God's Word and truth. If that is how you feel this morning, brothers, family, and God, and the Lord Jesus Christ, look at verses 23 and 25. This is Paul's prayer and ours too. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. Folks, family of God in Bloomfield, God is not in the business of bailing out on those he called to be part of his family. He has called you and I to be his. He is committed to sanctifying, transforming us in our thinking, our heart, our attitudes, our way of life thoroughly so that we'll be able to stand before him when he comes. And the lovely little reminder, he is faithful and he will do it.
take encouragement from this this morning. May it build you up. May it be your prayer for each other and our church family that God wants us to live like this. And we need to work in step with him. But he says he will do it. He will commit to it. He will sanctify, transform, and change you. Why? Because he is faithful and he will do it. Let me close in prayer this morning. And as we close in prayer this morning, what I'm going to do, I'm going to leave three minutes um, in which you may want to take time just to pray to the Lord and ask him for help. You may want to look through these verses and just meditate on them as we were encouraged in Psalm 1. You may just want to flick through this book of 1 Thessalonians and remind yourself of the gospel power and the way to live. You may just want to take a few moments quietly just to reflect and confess your sin and ask the Lord to help you to live this life that he has called you to. And as you're doing that, I'm just going to play a song which reminds us of verses 23 and 25, where it reminds us that he is faithful and he will do it. So let's take a three or four minutes just to reflect on God's word, and then we'll come to around the Lord's table together. Let's continue in prayer. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you today for this book that we complete in your word. And Father, we thank you for the transforming power of the gospel that is able to take idle worshipers like us and help us turn to the living and true God. Father, we thank you for your grace and your mercy that is expressed to us in the gospel of your son. Thank you that you purchased us with his blood and that, Father, you are transforming and changing and sanctifying your people to be more like him in everything that they do. Father, this morning as we complete chapter 5, as we look at these things that you are calling us, urging us, willing us to do, we confess, Lord, our inadequacy, our sinfulness, our resistance to your spirit and word, and we pray, help us, dear God sanctify us and may you the god of peace help us lord to stand blameless before you on that day when you return because we will be standing in your righteousness in the meantime father help us to live out that righteousness that blamelessness which you've called us to do help us to do that together as your people here for the glory and honor of your name we pray amen